0: Welcome to My Life, Citizen Supplied episode 204. A month that is designated as a month of joy. When we enter this month of Adr, we are told to increase in joy. And we're given the strength to increase in joy. And of course, joy is a critical component in life in general, success in life. Because when you have joy, you have that spirit and the lightness of spirit and that freedom that gives one courage and confidence to be able to deal with any given situation, including challenges. So Chassidus, the Baal Shem Tov, one of the foundations of the Baal Shem Tov's teachings in Chassidus was Simcha. So though is Hashem B'Simcha, serve God with joy, is a mitzvah that goes and precedes the Baal Shem Tov, goes back all the way to the beginning of when Torah was given, and is emphasized in so many different ways. Yet, as it is with all the principles that Chassidus teaches, that the Baal teaches, and then his successors, the Magid and the Altareb and Chassidus Chabad, illuminates and tells us how to access this joy, even when we may not always feel that way. And that is by connecting to the soul of everything. When you connect to the soul and are not um, and not distracted by the body, meaning by the externals and the superficiality of life, that is when you can access the reservoir of natural joy that exists inside the spirit. So in itself is a, is a theme worthy of My Life Applied because applying Chassidus is applying in this context of other joy in our personal lives. What, But in, in other itself, as the Rebbe emphasizes every day that uh, that we move along the month based on the rule that, that you increase and grow in everything that is positive and holy and healthy. So the joy is not one that just stays consistently, but every day we increase more of it. So yesterday's joy is not enough for the next day. And tomorrow's will be even greater than today. So it's constantly growth, which is the nature of, the, of life, is everything that's alive is always moving. Called chai misnanea, A living thing is evidenced by its movement. Movement doesn't only mean physical movement, movement means the heart is beating, the breath is breathing, that there is a certain element of restlessness and energy flowing, the pulsation of energy in the language of Chassidim, a pulsating energy that everything is on the move. And when things are on the move, you're either going up or you're going down, God forbid. So in this context of the month of other, the joy continues to move and continues to grow from day to day. In addition, we are now in the week of Parshas Kude, which meaning this coming Shabbos, we're already learning the shiurim of and then we will come to the Shabbos and read the full chapter. And also one of the, the third of the four unique chapters, part of which we'll talk about. I should mention that at the outset that this program is community-sponsored. It's a free service that takes a lot of work and a lot of energy and effort. And I want to encourage that you to help us continue this service by sponsoring a class or a program by donating, and you can easily do that at MeaningfulLife.com sponsorship. It's a great way to um, connect your loved one's special days or memory to something that really impacts so many people, and we are, we survive on your support. In that sense, we'll also dedicate this program to the loving memory of Rivka Farkash, who passed away tragically last week at a young age, um, the tenth of other, sister of our dear colleague Velva Farkash, and our condolences and warm wishes go out to him and his entire family. I might as well use this opportunity as well since this is a forum for questions at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. There you have a form where you can submit anonymously any question, any comment, completely anonymously. There's no way to trace it, so you can feel that your confidence will be preserved with you, and no one, including myself, can know who it is. I'm just saying that for those that want to write sensitive matters and are not comfortable, that anyone may know who that, what, who's, they are and what their identity is about. With that, let us talk about a little about and Poro. Vayakhbukhudeh, of course, are the last two chapters of the second book of Chumash, the book of Exodus, the book of Shmois, that the Ramban coins and uses the term he calls this book, the book of Geulah, Sefer HaGeulah, Because the central theme of, of Sefer Shemes is the Geulah from Mitzrayim, the redemption from Mitzrayim. And thus, when you call the entire book say so even the descent in, in Egypt and even the bondage and the Golis and the displacement and all the difficulties that the Jews faced there was all a stepping stone to lead them to this redemption. And the entire chapter is called that, the entire book is called that, which includes every chapter, and as the story unfolds, the, the specific themes that go after the exodus from Egypt in Pasha Boi and Bishalach, followed by the seventh day from when they left Egypt, the parting of the sea, and then 49 days from when they left Egypt, the 50th day when they received the Torah at Sinai, that's Pasha Yisrael and And then after that, within the year, within different opinions, exactly when, the commandment and ultimately the building of the Mishkan V'shechanti B'seicham. So you have essentially the three key things that are important in every person's life. To go out of your constraints and limitations, that's Yitzchitz Mitzrayim in our personal life, that we all have our constraints, we all have our Mitzrayim, our narrow space, our dire straits, and we search for transcendence, every person in their own way. That leads to the parting of the sea, which we've discussed about, discussed in previous weeks and uh, previous episodes, the idea of bridging land and water, which is the conscious and the superconscious, leading to Mount Sinai, where we receive the mandate, the blueprint, the roadmap for life, which is the Torah, and then finally consummating that, with the building of the temple, taking the materialism of our lives, the matter of gold, silver, copper, and all other aspects of our lives, and building an actual sanctuary, a divine home in this world, of these matter, following the blueprint of the Torah, which follows the Exodus from Egypt. So in other words, for us to be able to truly live up to the purpose of our lives, which is transforming our little corner of the world, and making it a better place, and making it a more divine place, we need to have a mandate by which to follow. You need an operator's manual. And prior to that, we need to be free. If you don't feel free, if you feel trapped in your mitzadim v'gvulim, in your limitations and inhibitions and fears and insecurities, you can't follow this blueprint and follow this operator's manual to build a temple. So there you have the entire Sefer in in our personal lives applied specifically to each one of us and to our collectively, to all of us together. We come now to the end of the chapter, the end of the last two chapters of So of course, like a con- good conclusion of a book of Gaula, this is where we finally ca- gather together all the different details. And we also actually erect the structure called the temple. So after the commandment, and after Moses instructing B'tzalel and his team how to build the sanctuary, the sanctuary is finally established in this last chapter which will then lead, as the chapter concludes, which is the end of the book of Shemais, that when the, when the cloud of glory rested, that's when they would stop. And when the cloud of glory would rise, that's when the Mishkan was re- re-packed up in order for them to continue their journey. Next book, Vayikra, will be the entire Sefer, all the way till Pasha Baal will be the laws that were stated and everything that happened in that period of time, in the when the temple, the temple was established and all that came with that, the services and all the laws connected to the temple. Pasher Ba'alei will continue where Bukude ends and that is the, that the cloud rises and then they pack up the Mishkan and they begin their journey, the 40-year journey through the wilderness. So if you see it in that type of context, it all plays itself out in our personal lives that we're now at the point where we're beginning the establishment of our Mishkan each in their own way. And Vayaka Pakude, as emphasized in many of the Rebbe's talks, the names of the chapters themselves capture their themes. So Vayaka means to gather. Moses, is gathering the people. Pakude means to count. Gathering and counting seem to be two opposites. When you gather, you're putting together, bringing together many details and focusing on the collective, on the synergy. When you're counting, you're counting individual. Eilu Pekudeh Mishkin, how much gold and how much silver and how much copper and Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses gives an accounting, every detail. You can't just give a general number because you have to break it down into detail, which in turn is really reflective also in our lives that when we build the temple in our lives, following the blueprint, following the roadmap and the operator's manual, following our transcendence from all our constrictions and rhymes, there are two aspects in building that. One is your individuality, the focus on the individual. And the second is the focus on the synergy that we all complement each other. The truth is I should go with other order because vayakal comes first. Not all years Pakud, they come together. They come together. The first focus is on the synergy because we're building something together. No one can do it alone. But just in case someone may wonder, is it all about us all simply losing our individuality and our our identities for the good of the of the of the cause or for good of the community? No, comes Pakude and teaches no the detail. Your individuality is necessary, absolutely necessary. And both are necessary in all aspects of life. One is Nili Mili. If I won't be for myself, who will be for me? Pakudeh, the power of your individual unique strength. And you can't just rely on everyone else doing it for you or supplementing or complimenting you. Then comes Manila if I'm only for myself, Ma'ani, what am I? the idea that we need each other to complement each other, like musical notes in a large composition, like many, many musicians in a large symphony, in a large orchestra. So you have many diversity, the Pakude, but they all come together in one beautiful harmony, the harmony within diversity, which again is so critical to the success in life that we know how to take the details of our lives and not be fragmented or compartmentalized, but align them all to a Vajakel type of harmony. And both complement each other because the individuality feeds the harmony and the harmony is based on the individuality. Each one doing their part, but at the same time recognizing how we each need each other and each of us need the other. We each need each other and every other part needs us. And we have to be able to balance those two forces. Many, many lessons can be learned from that. And to lead it also, Pasha Potter, which is one of the four chapters, unique chapters we read, basically from the period, from the time when we bless the month of other so it was the month of Purim, till the, the weeks before Pesach. So four unique chapters are read. We've discussed them in the past, and they are Parshas Shkolim and Parshas um, Zohar. Before Purim, we always read Parshas Zohar. Then comes Parshas and then Parshas HaChedesh, which this year will be the week following next, which is the Chedesh Nisan, which will be Shabbos this year. So Parsha Porah, the technical reason is because before you bring the carbon. The Korban uh, Pesach, which is connected to HaChadosh Kham, you have to be pure. And part of Aduma was the purification from, from the unhealthy, the toxins of death, Tumas mes. So before you bring Korban Pesach, you have to be pure. What does it mean in context of our Avedah, of our, of our personal service? applying it to our lives. So let's go back to what Pesach was. What was carbon Pesach? Yitzis Mitzrayim was the idea of transcending and going out of your limits and going out of your fears and inhibitions and all fill in the blanks, all the things that are your constraints. Before you have that, you need to have Potter. you need to have a purification. A purification is meaning you have to have an introspection. Tare and aveda is a personal introspective that you don't go table That when you purify yourself, you don't still carry a sheretz, an impure force, object in your life. So it's an introspection and a type of a, 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 a appraisal and assessment of your own personal life that you take accountability, you take responsibility and you correct whatever you're able to correct. Then transcendence is possible. Many times people say, you know, when I, get, I want to get out of my traps. I want to get out of the trappings of my life the Mitzrayim of my life, and they try and they try, and what happens? You get out maybe for a moment, but it doesn't last. You drag right back in into the inertia, into the status quo, into the patterns of your and habits of your life. Why? Because nothing really changed. You want to get out. Your motivation is there. And you sometimes feel desperate, so there'll be a certain push. But for it to be sustainable, there has to be some change within. You can't just expect that just because you want it, you can suddenly change your whole past. So Potter comes and teaches us there's an element of Tada where you have to do something different. Because as they say, if nothing changes, nothing changes. The motivation could be there, but you need more than motivation. Or another way to express it, which I, one of my favorite lines is, if you do what you did, if you, I should start, if you think what you thought, if you, said what, if you say what you said, if you do what you did, what will you have? What you had. Pretty Logical. So if you want real change, if you want to a life, you have to do something on your end. You make one shift. Sometimes it's one shift. Just type some type of going out of your comfort zone. One little shift and then from above, you've opened up the door. Because it's not a quantitative leap that's necessary, it's a qualitative. If a person is in a certain way, like he says in Tanya chapter 15, that if you're accustomed to doing something, it's not a Veda if you just do it again the same way. Even if you learn something a hundred times, and that's your custom, that's your habit, you haven't made, it's not called Avodah, it's, avod, it's called not serving. Serving means you've done something that's against the grain of your natural instinct. The 101st time, as he explains it there, that little move where you do something out of your comfort zone creates the tara that's necessary to really lead to transcendence. So we have to do our little part, some shift, a person naturally gives charity, they like to give a certain amount, give a penny more, give a dollar more. A person is accustomed to learning, and they became, it becomes their second nature, they do it by rote, learn a little extra, learn an additional moment, reach out to someone, do something more than your regular, that is the tada that a person's necessary, Pashapada, that leads the step to next week, which will be the experience of renewal, that comes with the new moon and what comes with the exodus from Egypt that leads, of course, into Pesach. So it's interesting. The Sefer Shmez begins with Yitzit Mitzrayim, which is the whole book is called Geula. Then it talks about the steps of, of, of um, the, getting the operator's manual, the mandate called the Torah, then the step of building the Mishkan, and in those weeks we also read these four chapters which are stepping stones as well to lead to a place of transcendence, even though we experienced the transcendence at the beginning of the book, but firstly there are many levels of transcendence, and secondly you want it to be sustainable as I explained. So there you have a Yachsidus applied lessons from both the Parsha of and the special chapter of Pada in our personal lives. I will also mention, since uh, so many of you have submitted essays and put hard work into it, the valuation continues. The excellent essays, hundreds of them. I've heard from some judges that they're very impressed with, some them, with quite a few of the essays. So we're on it. Just want you to know that, this is, even though you may not hear yet any announcements about results, because we have to finish judging them tomorrow and evaluating them all. But they're hard at work at it, and every penny, every penny. Every minute of energy that you invest in it is well worth it, and we are valuing that and recognizing how much time and energy and effort people made and reciprocating by putting all the effort we can to make sure that they are evaluated fairly, a fair, even a level-playing field for everyone following the guidelines that we, uh, of course, publicized. So stay tuned as we continue the journey of evaluating it, and we will announce the winner's in the coming weeks uh, when we're fi- finished the process of the judging and evaluating. Okay. With that, let us go. I want to just give some cross-referencing to the topic of Pashas Viya Kapukuda and as I do in, the, in our valuable resource center at MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife. You'll find, besides what I mentioned earlier, the opportunity to sponsor a program and to donate to make this program continue and help us make it happen and improve it, it, as well as the anonymous forum, you'll also find the resources where you can um, see the archives. And cross-referencing the archives, I will say in episodes 59, 109, 105, and 155, respectively, the first two talk about Vayaka Pakude, and the last two about Parah. That let us go to some new questions. We have many, many questions. They are definitely backed up. We can't cover them all, obviously, every week. But they, we are covering them, and I'm glad to say that we're moving along. So, if you have not heard your question answered, just be patient. It will be answered. And again, you can find these answers if you want to speed up the process and not listen to the whole program. They're all time stamped at my mylife and uh, go to the YouTube. They're all on YouTube, but they are linked through our site. And there they are timestamped. You can go exactly to the topic you're looking for. Okay, so we're going to cover now some new questions and do a little follow-up. And as our usual custom goes. So here's the question. Time between pregnancies and birth control. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, according to the U.S. Department of Health, mothers should wait at least 12 months between pregnancies to avoid complications for the mother, the newborn, and the future baby. Should we ignore these recommendations? Thank you. So I am not in the position to tell you what to do, what not to do, so I just want to make it clear. Everything I say here in my life, in my attempt of trying to either find direct, di- 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 directives from the Rabbeim, and particularly our Rebbe, uh, either in written form or in what they said, balpeh, orally to people, or Fabrengen's, the different uh, ways that they communicated, and including, of course, a question like this. I just want to make it clear that uh, that to say, should we ignore these recommendations, of course, the first question would be is, if the, if the doctor says something, mm-hmm. the doctor was given permission to heal, and we should follow doctor's orders. However, there's the classic Sikhs that the Rebbe spoke starting in 1980, and then years after that, about not... Following the cultural trend of family planning, which is waiting and making and planning our own timing of when children should be born. That this is a gift from God and the gift should not be withheld, should not really be withheld. Obviously, as the mentioned at the outset, we're not talking about any form of danger to the mother or danger in any way because Pekor Khanafish overrides everything, but we're talking about just for convenience purposes. It's not considered to be, from the Tata point of view, as the Rebbe explains, any type of blessing to wait. And therefore, yes, I believe the Rebbe would say not to follow those recommendations based on these talks. Uh, but I qualify again. If a doctor tells you there's a reason, a strong reason, or you have a strong reason and the doctor confirms it and you go to a Rav and you pr- present it, obviously you find that they'll be quite lenient in this regard because a person's physical health, as well as mental health and emotional health, is uh, critical, and we don't, and that overrides often the idea of sometimes, yes, having to space it. But I don't want to make a blanket statement that you just go do that without special circumstances. Because naturally speaking, these are blessings, just like you would not say, I'm going to close my eyes or not use my arms for an extended period of time because I want to just rebuild my strength. You don't do that. It's healthy for you to use your arms and legs, it's healthy for you to move about. And you don't say, you know, oh, I'm going to get exhausted. Yes, we have a time, we go to sleep. But for any extended period, it's not healthy for someone to tie their hands or their arms and legs. So the blessing of birth, as the Rebbe explains it in those talks back in around Shavua's time, 1980, Tav Mem, is exactly that. The blessing of birth is that God gave a human being, both man and woman, the ability to give birth to a child. And we can't even recognize and imagine maybe there's damage done to our psyches and our emotional well-being and even our physical well-being when we in some way try to stop impede the flow of that blessing. Now again, I qualify it again. We're not talking about extenuating circumstances, um, extenuating circumstances, I should say, or, or exceptions that are connected to health or other things. So that's the response to this question. I will also refer you to episodes 15 and 86, where I discuss at length the Rebbe's view on this matter of birth control or more importantly family planning which is even somewhat people are more lenient about because it's not directly birth control. It's, it's more of a planning as discussed in those episodes. I rarely do this, but here's the next question. Here's a question I have not been able to find an answer for yet. And I'm, re- I'm reading it because I'm trying to see maybe someone out there has seen something from the Rebbe or has heard something and make this a joint effort where perhaps I can get from you some, be- back, uh, some input or some suggestions Based on the question, the next question connected a bit to the last one, is the Rebbe's opinion on home birth. What is the Rebbe's opinion on home birth? Which is, of course, giving birth not in a hospital, but at home. Some people advocate it, some people say it's putting a child at risk, especially when you have all the different uh, technologies today, and why do that? I looked, I I can't say hard and far, far and wide, but I did look around. I did not find anything directly. This question has been in our archives asked a while back, so I decided just because I haven't found it, I'm not going to not mention it, so I'm mentioning it because perhaps there's someone listening that, as I said, has an answer from the Rebbe or a directive from the Rebbe about this matter. If there is no directive, then of course we always defer to what doctors say. And if one doctor has one opinion, another a second opinion, you go to a third one, you you follow the majority as the Rebbe's rule goes. But maybe there is something from the Rebbe on it, and, and I would love to be able to share it with anyone, so if you do know something, please do not hesitate and submit it on our forum or if you want to give more details. I'm sorry, on and, and our forum, if you want to give more details and want to g- tell us who you are, feel free to do so as well. But either way, please share if you know something on this matter. And as I said, I love to believe that this program is a interactive one where we're doing this as a partnership, meaning I'll do my best, my research and reading the questions and organizing them, but... We really, I really look forward to hear your comments. And even if they disagree or rebuttals or different sources, I'm the first and most celebrate when I receive something that I have not seen. And I'm able to have the honor and the privilege to be able to publicize it on this, on this platform. So uh, this fits into that category. Okay, let's go to the next question. Living in Crown Heights. Is it important to the Rebbe that I live in Crown Heights? Why is it so important to the Rebbe that I live in Crown Heights is another way someone writes it. Does the Rebbe really not want me to be able to afford my rent or buy a house? Does he really not want my children to have a yard to play in like, in, like, in, in, like I did growing up? Okay. So first let's establish what the Rebbe wants and what the Rebbe doesn't want. In the, in the 1960s, of course let me go back a moment. In 1940 the Friedrich Rebbe arrived to America and settled that later that year in um, Crown Heights, seven seventy became World Lubavitch headquarters. There was where the Rebbe spent his this was at home, this was his office, where he we where he saw and that became the center of Lubavitch. Ten years later, when the Rebbe took over the position of the Friede Rebbe after the Haskalus Yudshvat, obviously everything began to to uh, grow and blossom, and spread out even further. And seven seventy became that base. So therefore, the community of Chabad also continued to grow. There were some Chabad people that lived here even in the early years, in the 40s, but not as many. Many lived in Brownsville and other communities. Obviously, the Rebbe being the center, you want to be with the Rebbe, Shabbos, Yontif, and Fabringens. So Chabad community slowly began to blossom in Crown Heights. At the time, Crown Heights actually was, was really dominated much more by Jews, but not Chabadniks, and not even necessarily from the... The observant for persuasion, if you want to put it that way, but they were here, and it was—I I remember even as a child, the Rebbe going home from a Fabringen, and the streets were packed with Jews, with whites, and, uh, many, and most of them were not were oblivious that the Rebbe was even walking home. That was the community in the early '60s, late '50s, but then things changed, both in Crown Heights and, frankly, in all other city, major urban. Cities like Detroit and Philadelphia and Chicago and Cleveland, and so on with where a where pittsburgh and they became what was the the urban unrest civil rights movement with many many whites running and escaping into the to the suburbs or uh, becoming more affluent and able to go to the suburbs and this, the, these main cities began to become the, uh, began to become occupied by occupied is not maybe the right word, began to become the, the population that grew there. It was not the middle class, it was lower middle class, or even poverty class, which of course caused a deterioration and an acceleration of crime, a deterioration of the standards of living. And this began to spread. In our case, in Brooklyn, Brownsville, which was once a thriving community, many, many, many Jews, Brownsville and Lower East Side were the two bastions of Jewish life of, when the immigrants came here, both after the first world, uh, during the, the early part of the 20th century and then after World War II. And it was spreading, it was spreading. I remember myself growing up on one street, that street suddenly, every Jew, every white on that block moved out. Overnight, over the summers, but suddenly in the 60s, things dramatically changed. And uh, those of us that remember, remember it was a dramatic change. In 1969 is when the Rebbe, fin- well I should correct myself, Behind the scenes, the Rebbe was trying to encourage Jews not to run away. First of all, it puts others at risk, their shuls and so on. The Rebbe did not believe in that approach ever. But we cannot say that the Rebbe was successful in convincing everyone. Obviously, Chabadnik stayed. But many, many other Jews from different communities and all sorts did leave. And that caused a further deterioration. And again, I said, I remember I remember this vividly when we grew up. On, I grew up on St. Mark's. St. Mark Street and then later Sullivan Place, and that we couldn't live there any longer at some point. And crime, and, uh, and it was a dangerous situation actually. In 1969, Akhen Shal Pesach, the Rebbe, first spoke publicly and not just spoke about it, spoke elaborately and passionately and a halachic way why it's forbidden for people to run away from a Jewish community. You could find all this in the Sikhs that are printed in the Kutta Sikhs in Chalik Zion, volume 7 in the Esophis the details of this. So the Rebbe made a very strong emphasis to try to make sure to hold that the community should not give in to all the others and just escape. Now, obviously, at the time, mostly, as I said, Chabad remained. Many did leave. But the Rebbe's attitude is that if we stay strong, it'll rebuild. You look today, I don't have to tell you what Crownites is like today. The Rebbe's brachas were all fulfilled, but you had to see it through. He encouraged people to invest in real estate, establish Shebro at the time, and many, many other things, which I'm not going to go into detail because it's not really the topic, but I wanted to give it, into con- give, give it context. At that time as well, the Rebbe asked, it was the wedding of one bochon and Shiva here, and the Rebbe wrote then that he hopes that people start making weddings and celebrations Dafkin Crown Heights. In other words, to, to help rebuild, to help keep energy going, instead of people all running and doing weddings away from Crown Heights, which was generally the custom. The weddings were done, not because of clients. It was an issue. It was, uh, there weren't halls here or whatever the reason was. So then became even stronger emphasis to make weddings and simchis and chasanas here. And the Rebbe was very adamant that he wanted it that way. And that, again, if you look, the pale, it absolutely helped rebuild the community. I remember even when uh, Mayor Giuliani came for the dedication of a holoteira when they expanded the building. So they asked me to be the MC. So I was MC when Mayor Giuliani, I introduced Mayor Giuliani. I said to him, you have to thank the Lubavitcher Rebbe because he was the one that stemmed the tide. He drew a line in the sand that when Brownsville fell and Bedford-Stuyvesant fell, meaning fell that their communities became so, de- so degraded and so uh, deteriorated, he, did not, he drew the line in the sand that would not allow it to spread to Crown Heights. Had the Rebbe, God forbid, not done that, Crown Heights would have also become, and would have, who knows where it would have spread." So if you want to know where New York was rebuilt, and Giuliani was, of course, given credit after the pogroms in 1990, summer of 1991 here in Crown Heights. And the other things, Giuliani was given the credit of rebuilding New York to become where it is today, become a thriving metropolis again, cleaning up different neighborhoods, creating real estate opportunities everywhere, even in places that no one would expect that they were considered red light districts or slums or so on. So I said, you have to thank Lubavitch Rebbe. When he got up to speak, he says, absolutely. I do thank him, and I appreciate you making the point. So the Rebbe himself single-handedly was insistent that Crown Heights become a strong neighborhood and not to give in to the, to, the, to the resignation and the fears that people had and the promises that this would be And that was the encouragement not to run away to other communities and neighborhoods. That being said... There's another side to the whole story which must be mentioned. And that is, with all the building of Crown Heights, what did the Rebbe want people to do? He wanted them to go on Shlichus. The Rebbe wanted people to go on Shlichus, which was not in Crown Heights. was not even close to Crown Heights. All over the world. Had the Rebbe insisted that everybody stay here, or the Rebbe did not push people to go on Shlichus, what would Crown Heights look like? There'd probably be 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people here now. Living here. Because all these families, most of the Shluchim either grew up in Crown Heights or studied in Crown Heights and would have wanted to be around around the Rebbe. And the Rebbe did the exact opposite. He sent them away. And when one person actually said to the Rebbe, he wants to help build Crown Heights, so that's why he's staying here, the Rebbe said, and he wanted to help the minion, that the Rebbe should have a minion, the Rebbe said, meaning more important for me that you go on Shluchas than you stay here. So, how do we reconcile the two? The answer is very simple. If he has the Rebbe, what you should be doing with your life, he wants you to be a shlichach, to go conquer the world, wherever it may be. At the same time, those that did stay, for whatever reason, as those that lived here already, he did not want people to run from fear, not because of shlichas, to other communities and other neighborhoods and, other, and the suburbs, just for their own comfort. If you're going on shlichas, by all means, that's option one. But if you're not, to fear should not, occupy, not dominate our lives. And therefore, the Rebbe wanted people to stay in Crown Heights in that sense. So then we go back to your question now. Is it important that you live in Crown Heights? No. I would say the first thing, the most important thing to the Rebbe is to move away from Crown Heights, go find yourself a shluches, Or second best, go to a place where there are shluchim or shluchas become part of the community, become a, par- a pillar, a supporter, an activist, a volunteer, whatever it takes. That's part of the, what the Rebbe wants. The Rebbe never said people should stay. There are people, the Rebbe gave ex- exceptions, but generally speaking, that's what the Rebbe wants of you. Not to live in Crown Heights, go elsewhere. And by all means, but not because of fear, or not because just of money. Now, as regarding the issue of rent, we talked about this in previous episodes, about the issues of high rents and so on. People have to be practical. But if you want to know what the Rebbe wants, the most important thing is to go on Shlichus, and that's not in Crown Heights. As far as living in Crown Heights, as opposed to running somewhere else, this has to be, as I said, a practical question. The Rebbe yes would have preferred, if you're already not going to go on a shlichus or be part of a shlichus or be part of a community that is building somewhere and its, and its whole mission is to spread Judaism and then the first option, yes, would be Crown Heights. One of the reasons would be to keep this community strong. But that's that doesn't override the possibility due to the fact that financial reasons or others, people may say, you know what? I can't afford it. let me find somewhere else. But if you do find somewhere else, place to live, don't just go because it's cheaper. Go because you can become part of a community that you can build and support and help the spreading of Yiddishkeit and fulfilling the Rebbe's mission there. That would be far more, I would say, aligned to the Rebbe's rotson. So maybe as you can't afford to be here. I don't know, go somewhere where you could afford, but with the goal of also being part, not just, a, not just there to live, and you have a cheaper rent or cheaper uh, mortgage, lower mortgage, and so on. But actually, to become part of an active community and make it grow, and become a host to people, participate in events, um, connect with, bring individuals to shul, bring with them—all that comes with living in a community and uh, making it thrive, not just thrive physically, but thrive spiritually. So that is basically the response. So there's no such thing as living in Crown Heights. Just to live in Crown Heights to have to be to make it tough. The point is to leave Crown Heights for the right reasons, and in case today there are other reasons to do it in a way that is, as I said, part of the kavona and the shlichas that the Rebbe wanted to give us. And I refer you also to episode fifty-one, where this topic is discussed as well, especially about the rents and the high the, the rising rents, and the Rebbe had a very interesting sikh about that. Tezvov tamlos tov shemem Hay which I discussed in episode 51. Okay. <clears throat> now we'll deal with a few questions connected to relationships. Obviously, when you're dealing with chesita applied and the contemporary issues in life, uh, sometimes the most the top on the list of issues are marital issues, uh, sexual issues, intimate issues, um, shalom bias issues. So though we've talked about this a number of times, but different qu- questions come up from time to time. So I will address a few of those right now. And um, number question number one is, how do I deal with a spouse who does not share my need for emotional connection? What's the proper approach for me? Married more than 10 years to a good person, but emotionally, totally not on the same page. Even though I've, spe- even though I've spelled out many, many times, for example quote, it really means a lot to me to spend time with you when you're not distracted, end of quote. I think my husband just doesn't have strong needs for connection, so he doesn't get how important it is for me. How do I stay focused on the bigger picture of raising my children and and being a good wife when at times I physically ache for connection? Thank you. I want to refer you firstly, because I have talked about these topics, overlapping topics a number of times, to episodes 2, 5, 39, 67, 95, and 141. I know that's a lot, but I did talk about it, and I don't want to deprive you from the ability to go check out some of the things I said then, which may be more at length than what I'm going to say now, though I'm going to obviously address this question. As always, I have to begin with a big disclaimer, which is without speaking to the individual face-to-face and with the couple face-to-face, meaning the husband and wife, It's very difficult to give advice that's detached in that way because there's so many nuances knowing what what does the wife mean that there's no connection? Would the husband agree that there's no connection? Or he thinks there's a connection but of a different sort? Or would he agree? Are there other factors involved, for example? Maybe the husband is distracted by something the wife is not aware of. Maybe some things that are not even appropriate that, that, that have taken his emotions elsewhere. Was this always the case in your marriage? Meaning from the beginning of your marriage, was it always the case or this became an issue later in life? All these questions are critical to really ascertain what the situation is. You cannot give advice if you can't diagnose it. And to diagnose it, you need to know sometimes things that are not shared. So by all means, you can share them and I would uh, try to address it. But it still doesn't come close to seeing people, seeing their vibes, seeing their energy. And I say this, I know some people don't like these disclaimers. They say, why don't you just answer the question, black and white? My friends, that's not possible. It's not because I'm avoiding, it's not because I'm uh, trying to be vague or platitudes. It's because it's not respecting the dignity of individuals. And in this case, yes, I could take this by face value and say you're right, and your husband is simply not connected, then what can you do? But maybe there are things that can be done to make him more connected. Not necessarily advice to to the wife. Maybe there's advice of how to get the husband more involved. On ways that, in ways that he can find comfortable. Or maybe, the, maybe it's the opposite. The woman may be having more needs than usual, and the husband feels somewhat drained by constantly being there. I'm not saying that's the case, but it's possible. So it's impossible to, for me to give advice one or the other without knowing those facts. And I can give you a list of another 20 items that need to be addressed when you're talking about these things. So my first advice in this thing would be is to find a mashpiyah a mentor where you can both sit down and talk about it. I know often the case will be the husband will say, there's no problem, I don't want to go talk to anybody. I don't want to expose our issues to anybody. So that too, there are many ways to approach that. How resistant is he? Maybe maybe he would sit down with some people, maybe it has to be done in a way that's less threatening, not so much like like having a mediator, but rather someone, just simply a friend to listen. There are many factors that have to go into this, including understanding the personality of both spouses and what's, what each one brings to the table, and other the fact, and the other factors, some of the other factors that I mentioned before. Yet, with all that I've said, I will make a few key points here. And of course, this is, does not in any way negate what I just said, all the nuances. A few key points is the following. If some things are not working, the best is not to try to beat a dead horse, as they say, um, but rather, even though I don't really like that expression, but it just came out because that's one of the clichés that people use, but my point being is instead of trying to just try, try to keep and literally become over, over frustrated over trying again and again and again, sometimes new ways create things. There's an expression, "Mishana Mokka, mishana Mazel. You play, change the location, you change the Mazel, the look. Now, changing location can be moving somewhere else, but changing location could also mean changing your attitude a bit or going somewhere, maybe going out, finding something that your husband enjoys. And you may not love it, I'm talking now to the woman, to the wife. You may not love it, but he likes it. And showing that you're ready to do that, that means you go out of your comfort zone, may in a way engage him more, and you find a place to connect there. Now, of course, someone could say, why do I have to get out of my comfort zone, let him? But you know, you want connection, you're craving and aching for connection, that's sometimes the way to go. Because at the end of the day, every every relationship needs Bittal, from both parties. Now I may be completely off because as I said the circumstances here may be completely different. Maybe the husband really has a serious problem and maybe he's completely distracted and he's not interested and we have to find out why. But taking, just take, let's take at face value the idea that your husband is not feeling emotionally connected. That's one suggestion I would give. I would try. Another suggestion is can you talk to your husband about these things? Or is he just puts up a wall and is unable, unsophisticated, unable to have that emotional intelligence? The third thing is, what about the children? Does he also show emotional disconnect from the children? That's a tremendous point here. Because sometimes people, husbands, can be somewhat emotionally distant from their spouses for one reason or another. But their children, they're there completely engaged. So maybe the way to go through the children. Maybe take a trip together. So there's different ways to go. But what I'm suggesting is shifting things by shaking them up a bit. Do something different and there'll be different results. That's one point I would make. Now, when it comes to connection itself, you have to also remember men and women connect differently. Women connect often through having conversations. Not even conversations, just sharing. And men often don't like to share. They stay very much in their own cave. They connect sometimes through doing things together. Going out to dinner, doing something. Not even the conversation part, but they're doing something. That's one of the differences of how men and women bond. So maybe one has to look at it that way. Instead of looking at it your way, how you bond and connect to perhaps connect in that fashion. It's somewhat a variation of what I said before, but just adding the point that men sometimes connect in a different way. And of course I go back to what I said earlier, that often there is something else going on in a man's life, or in a woman's life for that matter, that is distracting them that maybe that you're not even aware of, and they really are emotionally connectable, but they're just not connecting with you because they may be distracted. If that's the case, you need to find out. And you need to then maybe find some intervention to deal with that, if that indeed is the case. So these are some thoughts that come to me. um, And I would add one final point, and that is, divide and conquer. You can't always conquer and win the whole entire situation. So what you have to do is often take step by step and take small steps and see what you can do. In this situation, maybe sometimes a small little gesture, maybe make a special dinner that your husband really enjoys, do something, a small gesture, little steps that create even small little connections, and sometimes small connections lead to the big, bigger connections, which, of course, points to, points, to the, points to the issue. Sometimes your own frustration can become another reason your husband may be afraid, because he sees that, he may sense that there's a there's disconnect, and he doesn't want to confront it, he doesn't want to deal with it. By, you can diffuse that by focusing more on smaller things that are not such major and the small can lead sometimes to, major, uh, majors, uh, to overcome major hurdles and actually achieve major successes. As I said, I referred you to a bunch of previous episodes, which will complement and supplement what I've just said. Okay, now, next question, which is, you can say is an extension of the previous one, but a little more sensitive matter and viewer discretion advised. The question is, how do we create balance between sneers and maintaining a strong emotional passion between spouses? I have a question, and I understand that it is only a theoretical question. But it is a question that I would like your opinion on. Which one is the lesser of two evils? A woman who is betachlis at tznius, ultimate modesty, meaning completely to the letter of the law and beyond, but she cannot open up to her husband behind closed doors. Therefore, the husband is extremely challenged by the world around him. Or a woman who is not dressed the way that she is supposed to be at all times, but she keeps her husband happy and satisfied. Therefore, the husband has no need to look somewhere else for satisfaction. As you can imagine, I'm a husband of the first type. And I'm extremely challenged and miserable about about the whole lifestyle. We as a society put an emphasis on Sineas without really caring about the men. I'm utterly disgusted by this. Please help. Thank you for everything. Okay, began quite mild, this little note, and then it became a lot more um, frustratingly and aggressive even. Okay, so firstly, my cross-referencing to episodes five and 158, which is part of the discussion that I will now share. It's an excellent question in general, however, with a few qualifications. When it comes to questions like this, there's the question itself that is, like you put it, a theoretical objective question, and then there's the people that are involved. Often I find that people who ask such a question is because they have serious issues themselves that they haven't resolved, so they throw it on their wives and saying, okay, my wife is not passionate enough, she's too tzniyazdik. It could very well be that the husband is also doing some things that are not very conducive, and the wife maybe is hiding behind her tzniyaz, or hiding behind her so-called prudish attitude. And it's not necessarily uh, coming from something wrong there. She may be reacting to the husband's shtick or mishagas. So there again, you need to know this factor because often it takes two to tango. And I can ask other bunch of nuanced questions in answering this. But I want to address the issue objectively, taking the personalities out of it, because the personalities have a big effect on this. Because I've seen many times that men or women are very, very uh, resistant and very repressed in their so-called passion and intimate passion, with, even with their spouses. And the reasons may have nothing to do with the spouse, maybe with their own childhood and growing up, of what they saw as love or withholding of love. Some are very afraid to be vulnerable, very afraid to be completely so-called naked. And I mean that in a psychological, emotional sense. And they have their ways, to, they do hide behind certain defense mechanisms and there's a whole list of litany of re- reasons that people some, sometimes go go and hide in that way so they use religion and sneeze, not necessarily in a it's not due to their yurshamim it's due to their fears and that's a fact that's a part of life we have to address that as well generally speaking a person who is a healthy sneesdic a person is not going to use snees to hide their fears cuz sneeze is meant to be dignity with god but when it comes in the bedroom between a husband and a wife, and a pi meaning there's nothing, nothing negative about it. On the contrary, let them be loving and passionate and exciting and a very, very adventurous and satisfying relationship, mutual relationship. Let them experiment. Let them talk to each other. Let them be as intimate as they can. That's exactly the point. So a healthy Chasidic person is never going to hide behind sneers and say, "I'm a Chasidic person." Obviously, there are things that Therese says that are not permitted. Fine. So good. But that doesn't in really negate hundreds and hundreds of other things that are not just permitted, but but encouraged. in a husband and wife enjoying their communication and their connection with each other. But that's a healthy person. An unhealthy person will use sneers as an excuse. They'll hide behind it. So it won't be, I'm afraid, or I'm afraid of being vulnerable, or, I'm afraid of being passionate, or I'm afraid of being completely open and connected with my spouse, so they'll hide behind sneeze. It's not sneezed, or, you know, I'm more of a, I'm a more modest person. Often that's not coming from a healthy place, so that needs to be established as well. I am going to discuss it more in the case when it's not a healthy place, because a healthy place, then I don't see any reason why husband and wife can't work this out. If it's an unhealthy place, there's going to be more difficulty because the spouse is going to hide behind all kinds of excuses and smoke screens. So you ask the question now, to go back now to your question, which is the best, better of two evils? I don't like to think in terms of evils. Why do we have to talk about evils? Let's talk about good. The best of all is two healthy human beings who are not perfect, two healthy human beings that do not allow um, their, their fears to, to mask themselves and use halacha to cover up for their fears or their insecurities or their vulnerabilities. That's a healthy people. What does that mean? A completely the human being. In attitude and in dress, you're with your husband in the time when you sh- you're allowed to be and should be. You're as close as possible, and those 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 uh, d- those uh, the, uh, those clothing and garments, and tznias that would apply to the rest of the world are absolutely not necessary there. On the contrary, who be bigda? He be bigda. It's supposed to be a, a completely open relationship and complete connection. Yes, in a way that is halachically allowed and not things that the says is not acceptable but the the halacha things are not acceptable do not take away do not say there should not be pleasure that there should not be enjoyment and all the other things i mentioned before now the fact that some people want to bring and say my Yir Shemayim is so deep my Yir Shemayim we want to bring up a child that's completely holy and healthy and we can't have any distractions of our own pleasure firstly is that who's on that level exactly Secondly, I would submit that many people who argue that it's not coming from necessarily a healthy place. It's coming from a a scared place. But it's dressed up as if it's a holy thing. Are there exceptions? Of course there are exceptions. I said there are nuances. But I just wanted to lay that out on the table as well. Now, in a case where there's an unhealthy element, yes, you may think of it as two evils. I would not suggest someone should start becoming Naziistic in public in order to satisfy their husband because he may go elsewhere for satisfaction, as you put it. I don't see that as a legitimate approach. I could say, work on it, that between yourselves, that those prudish, um, smoke smokescreens should not be there. But the woman should become more promiscuous, God forbid, or in any way not sneezed, because the husband will will not be tempted that much. I don't see the justification for that. As I said, work on it between the two of you. On the other hand, the other evil, which is that the woman remain in that place and the husband doesn't have, uh, says, I'm turned off or I'm not able to find my satisfaction, is equally problematic. So that's how I would voice it and how I work on it. Now, what happens if the spouse simply doesn't want to work on it? Well, that's always a challenge in any given situation where you have interests or you have needs and the other spouse does not want to address them. So either you have to be strong about it by saying, you know what, this is really affecting me. Not point fingers. Pointing fingers always backfires. But look at yourself. You say, you know, I have emotional needs that are not being met. I'm not demanding. I just want to talk about them. You're the person in my life. You're the person I love. This is the, you're the person I chose to be married to. And if I can't talk to you, who can I talk to? And if you, some way could do it in a heartfelt way, maybe you can get through and at least be discussed. That's the thing I would suggest is the first step in any of these type of issues. Instead of trying to say, you know what, I'd love if you dress not tzniyazdik because that turns me on or whatever it may be. That I would suggest it more this way than I'm describing because as I said, sneez is absolutely part of Torah and halacha and, and necessary, and even sneez between husband and wife is necessary, but there sneez takes on a different shape and form and should never be used as a smokescreen to hiding deeper fears or inability to have emotional intelligence and emotional expression. So I hope I covered it to some extent. I'm happy to hear more questions, more details and, and discuss it further or hear anybody, other, other people's comments on this topic. Next question. Channeling inspiration and highs Positively. Why is it that when we're on a spiritual high, like after an inspiring event, etc., we can't just go to sleep. We feel we have this extra energy like on a high, but unfortunately that usually leads to wasting time or using that energy for taivas, desires, or waste of time, Gashmi's desires, etc. I guess it's like Klipa trying to chap some Yunika Hara, etc. Let me translate. That means it's like Klipa, the negative forces trying to grab some, with some uh, nursing, some energy, and the Yetzirah from our high, which is true. What do you suggest to do to lock the spiritual energy into gedusha, into holiness, so nothing can get a hold of it, and to keep that energy so we can properly channel it, to use it and help us, etc.? Maybe it's like Mitzayu Shabbos, people waste it on pizza and ice cream when it's our soul thirsting for more. Okay, good question. I will refer you to episodes 24 Thirty-nine and one-thirteen, where I discuss it in the context of the holidays, of how to hold on to an inspiration and maintain it, in an ongoing, a perpetual way. The answer really comes down to this: is what Chassidus says in a number of places, that the best way to take an inspiration in the high, and not let it just get wasted or be or feed into negative things, is an action. If, for example, you have an inspiration and you make a a resolution, you and I are going to now you. I'm going to learn with someone else once a week. with You're going to do some volunteer service. You commit it with someone else, which makes it much more easier and more, more, more assured that you'll continue. And you channel that energy and make that a chlota and you stick to it. If it remains just a resolution in your mind, so the energy is there, but the energy will, as you point out very clearly, will, be, will often feed other things and ultimately dissipate. So it's critical to take the energy as close to the inspiration as possible. You see this in so many sikhs of the Rebbe where he said the resolution. Right away tonight, make an asifa, make a, a meeting, not to make another, a meeting to announce another meeting, a meeting of what we're going to do right away. You need more deliberation with time? Do that afterwards. So the action that follows an inspiration, the closer the action to the inspiration, that's how the formula goes, the more likely it will be sustained. Simple as that and do it with someone else, that'll make it even higher the chances that it will be sustainable because you have another person involved. So it's like taking energy and packaging it into a container. The Rebbe would give mashkeh, almost every and at the end of the fabrengan, he would give mashkeh to pu'ulis activities, amelava malka, connected to different uh, Jewish or holy organizations. And would often quote the the droshes haran, Rabbi Nisim has this drosh salam where he writes that the Nuvim, when they prophesied, they would hold on to some physical object, a garment, a container, a vessel, because it was a way to ground the flow of the Nuvu, which was so intense, and it could easily just not ever come into fruition. To concretize it, they needed something to ground it. And that's why the Rabbi said, giving mashke grounds the idea, grounds the inspiration into something. So that's a basis of doing something immediately that begins the action as soon as possible and that starts, that will channel the flow of the energy of the high and the inspiration and make it far like more likely that it will be sustainable and perpetuate okay there's a few follow-ups we'll do some follow-ups and the this this question of the week what are the follow-ups Sh- shaming abusers oh boy this is what about this was the question about wall of shame forever does a, person has, does a person who has paid his dues for violating others need to be shamed for the rest of his life? I can't tell you how many responses came into this, mostly very strongly supporting what I've written, what I spoke about, which is the idea that it's not about the shaming of the person, it's about firstly protecting other people. You can't just make believe this didn't happen. A person can be a danger. And secondly, the, most, the, the, the idea that sometimes that is a deterrent and necessary simply for the person to be able to grow and maybe ultimately do find some healing, the, the abuser, that is. And that the focus should be much more on the victim or the person who was hurt than on the person who did the hurting. Now, there were responses back and forth, back and forth. Many of them I saw also online on some of the websites that broadcast this program. So you can read them yourselves. I will just say one thing, which sadly is sad, um, and a few people wrote about it to me as well. That often those that are, ta- are accusing and basically defending and saying no one should be shamed forever, since they're all anonymous when they submit, are they some of the people who actually did the crimes? Because that's the first thing you think about. The people who did not do, who were the victims, who were violated, you know, very few say, "No, no problem. Just give, forgive them, and let's move on." So without knowing who's writing what. I think we all have to understand that it could be quite tainted based on the motivations and the subjective motivations that people have when they write. And we're not we're not fools, we're not naive. We understand that people who have done this would love it to go away. You know, we all love it wouldn't have happened, but it did happen. We'd love it to go away, and we'd love to find ways in saying that they're being accused wrongly or they've already done tshuva. But I discuss this more at length, but I just wanted to make that comment. Because to continue perpetuating the idea that, that the crime is not so bad, or a person should not be shamed, may not be really serving the cause of helping someone heal. I am not saying it's fair that the family should be hurt by someone's crime, but that's part of what the criminal did. When someone does a crime, they don't just do it to, them, to, the, to the person they violated, they do it to their wives, to their children, to their friends, to everyone, they violated everyone. They brought now upon their home a stigma So this is a reality on the ground. To minimize that is is the way to solve the problem. To solve the problem is to uproot it at its source and root. Now, until a person who's done this crime does not come to those terms and say, I will lead the effort to make sure that this crime is eradicated from this earth and will do everything it takes, including shaming people like myself and others, you can't trust people like this because, of course, they want it to go away. Now, this is a tater approach. The tater is not coming to hurt anyone. The tater is coming to deal with things in an honest and real way. To suddenly minimize the crime or to hide the crime is not a tater approach. I'll say you're shaming the criminal. Yep, yeah, that's part of life. That's what happens when a criminal is caught. Yes, he is shamed. Why is he shamed? Not because the shame is the intention, because you need to have a deterrent. You need to stop the person. And you need to seek. Memeni that you have people learn. You have to learn from it. The tater says a number of times, why do we do this and this to a criminal? So others will learn and see what happens. Now the is coming to shame someone that's a Salam alakim. God forbid. But, but part of reality is when a person brings on such a, such a terrible thing, it has to be addressed. So this whole conversation of trying to minimize it and trying to protect those that did the crime, I don't understand where that's going exactly. Is that the goal? That will help the healing? That will stop violations and stop molestation? Now, of course, I understand where they're coming from, but that's why the tater says there's a negeba dover, and we need objective people to discuss this. I'm trying to be as objective as I can. I, I was never violated, and obviously did not violate, so I do not feel that I'm in a position where I'm saying something that is somewhat tainted, but we have to look at it with that type of clear-headed and, and, and clear headed and level eyes to be able to really come away with what we're looking for is real healing, not making people comfortable or less comfortable, or less, or take away some of their own pain of their own guilt of what they've done. So, with that said, let's go to another follow-up. Health, healthy eating, according to the Rebbe, which was, again, last week's episode. Supreme Shpia Jacobson. Yeah, this person continues to call me this. I don't know who it is, but um, you're coining me this way. Is, it gives a way that I can, I can see which and uh, list all your questions to me, because you keep calling me this name, and I read it simply because that's what you call me. From what I remember learning in the HaSichas, the Rebbe explains that the reason why the Rambam puts his dietary laws in his halacha compendium is because they are indeed halacha, and as such, relevant for all times, as halacha is in general. As such, it would seem that the halachic way, and maybe indeed the Hasidic way to eat, is as the Rambam teaches. Okay, thank you. Another follow-up, God's anger. Again, last week's episode. If anger is such a terrible thing, why does it say in the Torah, for example, in Shema, that God and God will get angry and the heavens will stop giving rain? Also in Tanya, it says about getting angry, and the are harder. So I spoke about this at length last week in the Chassidus question, which was that, firstly, these are metaphors. We have, the Torah speaks in the language of man. And God's anger is not anger as we understand it in the conventional sense. Anger is a di- disconnection. That when we do something, it causes a disconnection because it causes an effect. As far as anger at the Yetzirah, we'll talk about that in the question in just a few minutes. Another question regarding this topic. Dear Rabbi ja- Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Thank you so much for addressing the topic of reward and punishment last week. This is something that I haven't understood properly until now, and I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. I still have a question though. Tanakh is full of stories of how the Yidin did this or that and they were punished for it. I understand it was a consequence as you explained. But when there are hardships in my own life, am I supposed to view it as a consequence of something I did? For example, I still haven't found my Shidduch and it's something that is very painful for me. Did I do something to have the things be this way or are there some things that don't have a rhyme or reason and don't follow the logic of action and consequence? I know this was a bit lengthy but I hope you can get a chance to address it. Thank you. Okay, the quick answer is there's two, he, there's two quick answers. One answer is that reward and punishment in the context of cause and effect doesn't always mean the individual. You did something, like we said, you put your hand in fire, it gets burned. It's not quite that way. It could be collective cause and effect. Over history, people have done things, our grandparents have done things. You know, the Chet Eitz Adas is a cause and effect that affected all of history until Mashiach comes. Cheta affected all of history. It doesn't mean always immediate, it's collective. So when we talk about it, it's not like you did something and that's why this is happening to you. We don't say that. We say in general, the idea, when the Torah says, that you, such behavior brings damage to the world and to the individual. Sometimes you see it, sometimes you don't. As a matter of fact, in the Geras Hatshuva, the Al Rebbe says, why we don't have Kharis today at age 60, is because the world is more callous. So it's not so aligned with the divine, and that's why a person can live on, even though... They're, they're living more on negative energy than on positive energy because the world is more callous and not so sensitive. My point being is that it's not an immediate cause and effect. If a person's not having, finding a shidduch, I would not just start pointing and saying, because you, you did this, you did that. All of us did many things that are not positive. And still we have blessings in our lives because you have to think it more in a broader sense. Now obviously there are times we do something very directly and you can identify that's the cause for your problem. But to go start looking for every problem and saying, here's the, the cause, it could be more collective, it could be part of the whole culture. So we have to think of it in those, that context. That's one key point, as I said, the collective versus the individual. Another point is that, the yes, indeed, if something's not working in a person's life, like the Rambam says, we have to be introspective when there's a tragedy or crisis, and we have to look into and see what we can do to repair it. That doesn't always mean you did something or someone else did something. You're looking to find ways to you can heal within you. And that healing has a ripple effect because God said when one act can tip the scale toward redemption or God forbid the opposite way. For personal and for collective redemption. Maybe or So these are the two points I would make. There was another question that was asked but because of time I'm going to leave it for next week, about the minion that Davin's fast. I'm going to go now to the Chassidus question. And that is, yeah. according to the Rambam, the anger midis Midas and Chassidus. According to the Rambam, anger is a Midas that we need to be, exce- to be excessive in not having. There's no middle path with anger as with other Midas. In other words, it's not about balance. It's about eliminating it completely. Is there such a thing as righteous anger or holy anger? Stemming from nefesh alikis. Healthy anger stemming from the divine soul. Can someone channel their anger for good causes? Or is that just not bad for a bad midah? Meaning anger. But really they should aim to uproot it and positively impact the world from a place of love and light. Because we see a lot of good can happen from people's anger being directed positively. Is there something inherently defective about that good? Good coming from a place of anger. Also, how do we teach this idea to kids? That anger is a bad mida without making them feel like bad people for having such a mida, such an emotion. There's this idea, there's this idea, does it jive with Torah that feelings are neutral? It's a feeling, and when you view it without judgment, you can deal with it better. If you say it's bad, then that can connote feelings of shame or being inherently bad or defective in the mind and heart of a person who experiences this feeling of anger or other bad mida frequently and intensely. Shame often prevents them from moving forward and growing and connecting with others. Also, there's the midas like chesed, gvura, etc. And then there's the midas like good midas, kindness, generosity, etc. And bad midas like anger, arrogance, etc. How does chesed differentiate and define between these two? Was the Alter a source for using this term midas ra'yis? These questions were all sparked by a discussion with her friend on the Tanya of this day, and he sends a link of which day it was. Okay, thank you. Well, let's put it this way. Anger, yes, anger is a negative thing, and generally has to be uprooted. Is there a concept of kazd of anger and holiness or healthy anger? Well, we find the Tata speaks that God gets angry, as was mentioned earlier. We find even the word sinna, hate, let's use that. So hate is usually a completely negative thing. You shouldn't hate anything. And yet we say, Tachus you look in Tanya chapter 32. You look at, most importantly, chapter Tanya, Tanya chapter 10. It talks about Sadiqim, about their hatred. It's a dover moz. They find it despicable and disgusting, anything that's evil. Hating evil. So you have to distinguish between hating, as we see it as a negative, and hating there doesn't mean hating that they're hating people. That the tzaddik, God forbid, is someone that hates. It means they're so disturbed by it. That it's as if like they hate it, but they don't become a hating person because you look at them, they're loving people. So I think you have to distinguish between health between a a, um, a being a hatred or anger that's that is filled with a na- negative aspect or anger being disturbed by the fact that something is not aligned with what God wants, which can look like anger, but it will never be uncontrolled. It will never be um, aggressive. It will never be abusive it will never be condescending so is there a concept yes it's a concept but we wouldn't usually use the word anger we'd use someone like being disturbed so disturbed by it so on the outside someone can look at it like anger but anger cannot be from intolerance it's not coming because i can't stand it because then it's back to you could be angry at sometimes things that you should be angry at and you could be angry at some things that you that that, that, that uh, I, let me correct myself you could be angry at something you should be angry at, but if it causes you to be an angry person, that's not healthy. If it's deliberate that you say this thing is not aligned with what God, and therefore disturbs me, and I cannot deal with it, in other words, seeing anything that's the opposite of light, the opposite of holiness, that's not an anger that is, as I said, uncontrollable, or you lose yourself. It's an anger that's very deliberate coming from a person who's extremely holy, and therefore anything that's the opposite of holiness causes them to be disturbed, is the word I would use. So again, semantics may be a factor here, but the most important thing is we're not talking about you. If you get consumed with hate or consumed with anger, that's an unhealthy thing. If it's a hatred because you are so connected to the divine and anything opposite is disturbing, then you're dealing with a situation that is possible. So it's again words, but I hope I answered the question. And if it needs more explanation, please feel free to follow up. With that, I will conclude this, this episode, My Life is Supplied, episode 204, and repeat again that we are completely dependent on your support to make this happen. So please go to MeaningfulLife.com slash sponsorship to sponsor our program, to donate. This is a service, a free service, that puts a lot of work, a lot of effort goes into it. And I want to wish you again a very Frey and simchadik Adr, continuing Chay Adr. Mismach Geula Legeula from the Geula of Purim, the redemption of Purim. We march toward the redemption of of Pesach and Yes Mitzrayim, the month and we went to the enter month of Nisan, which will be Nissan Nigalu, Binisan Asidn Ligoel, which takes us to the Gula Hamitis Vashlema. May that happen now and through our effort in taking this, teaching siddh, spreading siddis, applying siddhis to our personal lives, to the Chutzah, to every aspect, even to the deepest innermost recesses and outermost outskirts of our lives and of the world. Our Mashiach Promise will be awesome. Every Sunday we are here, 8 to 9 p.m. This has been My Life It is Applied, episode 204. Everyone be blessed. Thank you.